Okay, so uh, last weekend we started a new series on the book of Daniel, and I've been really excited about this. I had somebody last night after service say, you know what, this is cool because a lot of times in churches that they had been to, um, it was only talking about stuff in the New Testament, you know, which the New Testament is, you know, the life of Jesus and kind of the, the early part of the church, right? So it's super relevant, important for us, right? But there's lots of stuff in the Old Testament that's very relevant for our lives as well. And so the book of Daniel is one of those Old Testament books that was written a long time ago, 2,600 years ago. So 600 years before Jesus came, the book of Daniel was written in an area of the world that's really different than where we're at today. And yet it is so relevant. There's so much, hopefully over the course of this series, you'll be able to see that. There's so much that Daniel and his friends experienced 2,600 years ago in Babylon that is directly relevant to our lives today. And so I'm excited to dig into this. Um, here's, here's kind of the, the plan, the structure for this series. So the book of Daniel is, uh, it's a real symmetrical book. So it's 12 chapters total. The first six chapters are these stories, these histories of Daniel and his friends and their lives in Babylon and the things that they do and the things that God does in them and through them. Really, really good stuff. The second part is all about these prophecies, chapter 7 through 12, are all about these prophecies that God, these visions God gives to Daniel of the future. And so we're going to spend, we're going to do this series in about seven weeks. That's the plan right now. The last week or two, um, we're going to do these prophecies, and we're going to talk about that. But the first six weeks of this series, we're going to spend in the first six chapters. And so last week, we kind of introed it, and we dug into chapter one. This week, we're going to be in chapter two. Next week, we're going to be in chapter three. And so I challenged you last week, read ahead. Like, read the chapter that we're going to talk about. It will... If you read it and allow God to like begin to allow this stuff to ruminate in your heart, God to speak to your heart, it will make the most of our time here today. So um, hopefully you had a chance to read chapter two last week. If you didn't, it's okay. Um, but next week we'll be in chapter three, and I really encourage you to read chapter three. So before we jump into chapter two, let me give you a little bit of a background on kind of what, uh, just real quickly, I'll recap a little bit from last week, what Daniel's about, what's going on, how he wrote, all that sort of stuff. So uh, this is written at a time, again, 2,600 years ago, okay, 600 years before Jesus, when Israel, so the nation of Israel was broken in half, and the northern part of Israel was its own separate country, and they were destroyed already. And then the southern part, which was called Judah, was rebelling against God over and over and over again. And God's calling them back, come follow me, come follow me, come follow me. And they won't. And so eventually God says, okay, if you don't, then I'm going to kind of remove my hand of protection. And there's a country called Babylon that's going to come in and they are going to destroy you. And so by the time we get to the book of Daniel, that's exactly what's happened and is happening. Okay, and so this this ruthless nation. If you're, you should read about them. I mean, they are they were a ruthless people led by a ruthless king, Babylon, and their king was Nebuchadnezzar. They came in and they just destroyed Israel, and they kind of did it in waves. And the very first wave was when they captured uh, Daniel and his friends. We looked at them last week: Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Right? They come over and they captured them. And so this is what they did: they would either annihilate people and just kill them, 
or they would take the important ones and they would bring them back to Babylon, okay? And this is what Daniel and his friends were part of. They were part of the, the nobility, maybe part of the royal family in Jerusalem. And so they were found to be, uh, it says, people of, that were smart, handsome, sharp, quick to learn, right? And so they grab them, they bring them over to Babylon. They're about 14, 15 years old, young. Take, ev- take them from everything that they knew, And they bring them to Babylon and they put them, this is how they operated, they put them in like this training program, this wise men training program, okay? It's a three-year program to essentially help them forget everything that they left in Israel and become these Babylonian wise men. And so as they're there, they have a decision. We looked at this last week. They have a decision to make. Do they uh, become exactly what the Babylonians are looking to make them? Or do they hold to their convictions? Do they hold to their convictions in who they were, right? And all that they learned, what they believed, their heritage, or did they compromise? And what we found out last week, and we'll see throughout the book of Daniel, is that really they did both. They used a lot of wisdom and they used a lot of discernment to like when to hold to their convictions, right? And what we found out last week, and again, we'll see moving forward, is that they held to their convictions when it would have been sin to do otherwise. So if they would have followed what the Babylonians told them to do, they would have been sinning against God. They would have been breaking God's heart and breaking God's laws. And so we looked at this last week. They would step back and they would go, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to follow what you say. Whatever comes, comes. And they really relied on God. And then there are other instances, and we'll see this again moving forward more, when they compromised, when it was like gray areas. And we said it wasn't right or wrong. They weren't like breaking God's heart or breaking God's rules. And if there's not right or wrong, it was just preference. And so they said, okay, we'll do what you want us to do. That's, that's kind of how they operated. And so we challenged you last week. We said, you know, like that's really relevant for us today too. Because not everything is right and wrong. Not everything is black and white, right? Not everything is true and untrue. There is a lot of gray in life. And so we said, what does it look like for us to use wisdom and discernment on when to hold to our convictions and when to compromise and go, it's no big deal, right? This is just my preference. I prefer it this way, but you prefer it that way. That's fine. And we said the history of Christianity, we have to be really careful because the history of Christianity is many times we are convicted about things that we should be compromising on, right? And then we compromise on things that we should be convicted about. And so last week we kind of dug into all of that stuff and we talked about what that looks like in our lives. And then I want to, before we jump into chapter two, let me tell you like two big picture things that I want us to remember in the book of Daniel. The first one is this, the hero of Daniel. Who is the hero of the book of Daniel? If, if we're not careful, we could look at it and we could be tempted to look at Daniel and his life and his commitment to God and the lives of his friends and go, man, Daniel's amazing. And we can idolize him. We go, Daniel is the hero of the book of Daniel. But that's wrong. Daniel's not the hero of the book of Daniel. God is the hero of the book of Daniel. God is the one who's strong. God is the one who's powerful. The Babylonians were powerful, but God is stronger, right? Nebuchadnezzar is powerful, but God is stronger. God is the one who's faithful. God is the hero of Daniel. The second thing I want to say is that, um, like, take a 30,000-foot view of the book of Daniel, and this is important. The big idea of the book of Daniel is this. God wins. God wins. 
strong as Nebuchadnezzar was, God's ways win. As strong as Babylon was, God's ways wins, right? And I would challenge you this way too, like whatever you've got going on in your life, God is stronger than that too, right? Daniel is dealing with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and all of this stuff and God wins. God is stronger. Whatever you're dealing with in your life, it's the same thing. God wins. God is stronger. So last week, I challenged you. Again, so we got a book that's 2,600-ish years old, written in uh, present-day Iraq. That's where Babylon is. It's present-day Iraq. Different time, different culture. I want to challenge you the way I did last week. Do the hard work of taking these truths of who God was and what God did in Daniel and his friends' lives. Do the hard work of taking that and saying, what difference does that make in my life today? Because the goal of our time isn't just that you learn what chapter 2 of Daniel is about or that last week you learned what chapter 1 is about. It's not just knowledge. The goal is application. It's wisdom. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is knowing stuff. Wisdom is knowing stuff and applying it to our lives. So I want to challenge you to do the hard work of learning what this is about and then say, what, dif- what do I learn about God? It's the same God, right? What do I learn about God and who he is and his faithfulness by the ways that he related to Daniel and he was faithful to Daniel and he was trustworthy to Daniel? Make sense? Okay, so chapter two. We get to chapter two and it's interesting. Chapter two is really, when you boil it down, is all about a rock. It's all about a rock. I love rocks. Any rock people in here? Raise your hand. Make me feel good. There's a few of you. I, I love rocks. When I was a kid, I used to have a rock collection. I loved it. This, these are actually from my son's rock collection. It must be hereditary. Rock lovers must be hereditary. My grandma, when I was a kid, had a pet rock. You guys remember this? This is like the dumbest thing ever. But I remember it sitting on her counter. My mom, my mom, when she and my dad would go on vacation, um, wherever they went, she would get a rock. <laughs> she would bring it home, you know. But it's kind of interesting because they're so different. Like, they're so diverse. Um, my favorite rock is granite. I always like granite. Actually, I like that kind of best, kind of the, the pinkish. Oh, go back to that one. I, like, I kind of like the pinkish one the best, but granite was like always my favorite rock. My second favorite rock, go to the next one, is the Rocky Mountains. It's a really big rock. I don't know if you've ever been to the Rocky Mountains, but you go there and you're like, man, it is ridiculous. Like, it's so huge. It's so majestic. You, it's, it's like awe-inspiring. I just, I love rocks, right? Some people love rocks. Rocks are amazing. But rocks could also be kind of scary, right? Like, I remember when I was a kid, learning that the, um, the Ice Age probably happened because a big rock or meteor or asteroid hit the Earth, right? Remember learning this? And I thought, I am so scared that there is going to be another asteroid that hits the Earth that we're going to go into an Ice Age. I remember, uh, like, driving through. You ever, you ever do this, like, when you're on a road that's, like, cutting through the mountains or whatever, and there's big rocks on each side, like boulders on each side? Does anybody else fear that one of those boulders, thank you, I see Ned's head's nodding, yeah, boulders are going to come crashing down on top of you. I I remember when I was a kid, we were um, at Lake Erie, a place called Lakeside, we were there with with some friends of ours, and I don't even know how old I was, I was probably eight, nine years old, and like a typical eight, nine-year-old boy, I was like skipping rocks, me and my friend were skipping rocks, 
and I had a, a, a good-sized rock, and I go to skip it. He's like right here. I go to skip it, and it like stuck to my finger a little too long, and it goes, and it beams him right in the head. Oh, like rocks can be amazing, but rocks can also be pretty scary, right? Like rocks can be, can be terrifying. Well, chapter two is all about, of the book of Daniel, is all about a rock, and it's really interesting because it's a rock that this king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, dreams about, and it absolutely terrifies him. It tears, terrifies him, and it causes him to do some pretty extreme things. But to Daniel, it doesn't terrify him. To Daniel, this rock is magnificent. It's beautiful. It's amazing, and it's awe-inspiring. And here's what I'd say for us today. This rock, and this will make sense as we dig into this a little bit more, this rock that we're talking about that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt about 2,000 years ago is still invoking those same feelings in people today. To some, this rock, this will make sense in a little bit, brings fear and anxiety and worry and even terror to people. To others, this rock brings joy and hope and excitement and magnificence. And so here's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give away the ending of, of our time together. At the end, I'm going to ask you a question, okay? It's an important question. And here's what it is. What kind of emotion is this rock that we're going to talk about in Nebuchadnezzar's dream 2,600 years ago invoking in you? Is it invoking fear and worry and anxiety? Or is this rock invoking magnificence and peace and joy and excitement, okay? It'll make sense as we go. All right, so why don't we do this? Grab a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Or you could open up your Grace Church app and click on the little Bible tab and open up to Daniel chapter 2. So I went back and forth a lot this week on what to talk about in chapter 2 because chapter 2 of Daniel is the longest chapter in the book. So chapter 1 we were at last week is pretty short. We kind of cover the whole thing. Chapter 2 is a re it's more than twice as long. It's almost two and a half times as long as chapter 1. And so I really went back and forth a lot. Like what do we talk about in, uh, in chapter 2? By the way, that's, a, that's part of the reason why I want you to read it ahead of time. There's not enough time to talk about everything, okay? It's part of the reason I want you to read it ahead of time, to allow God to begin to like have this stuff simmer on your heart. And so I went back and forth a lot, like what do we talk about? And at first I thought, I want to talk about the beginning part of chapter 2, where, where kind of like what Daniel does, and he kind of uh, finds out what's happening with this dream and all this, and there's a lot of stuff that we could learn from that that's really valuable. But where I ended up, kind of, kind of 11th hour this past week on Thursday, I was like, I don't think, I don't think that's where I want to go. I think I actually want to dig in to this dream that God gives Nebuchadnezzar. Because at first you could read it, and it's a little bit confusing. You'll see. It's a little bit confusing. You're like, I don't exactly know like, what that means or what he's referring to there. But when we actually understand it, it turns out to give us very, very powerful evidence to trust in God. And I know this. Some of us, you know, we could look at the Bible and we go, I don't know. You know, it's a... It's a long book that was written by a lot of different people over a giant you know, span of years. How do I know that I could trust it? I struggle with trusting it. Or maybe you know, you've turned on the TV and you've seen a documentary that says 
you know, why not to trust the Bible? Or there's all these other books that should have been, and the church just decided what's in the Bible or not. Or you click on something, you know, on Facebook that, you know, talks about, because everything on Facebook is true. Like, we all have to be on the same page there, right? But you click on something, and, it, you know, it's talking about how you can't trust this. And we can look at the Bible, and we can struggle with trust. And I want to say this, like, the Bible's true, it's one of, so if you're getting to know Grace Church, this is one of our most foundational beliefs here. We actually believe this is true. We actually believe it's real. The stuff that it says happened, we believe actually happened or will happen depending on if it's a prophecy. So I, wanna, I wanted to focus on the second part of chapter two, this dream, because it's a prophecy. It's a vision that God gave Nebuchadnezzar of the future that I think as we dig into, you'll go, man, that gives me great reason to trust that all the stuff that it says in here is actually true. So, so here's what I want to do. I want to kind of just explain, again, it's a long chapter. So the first part of it, I want to just, I'll, I'll just talk about it. I'll just explain it, and then we'll dig into the second part. And I'll give you... Um, I'll give you some of the things that I would have talked about. If we would have dug into the first part, I'll give you some of the stuff that I would have talked about. And so maybe you want to write it down and go, like, this is what God wants for me to learn from this, right? You got to dig into that a little bit more. But then we're going to spend more of our time talking about the second part. So here's what happened. This is what chapter two is all about. So this Babylonian king, this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream. And to him, it wasn't just a dream, but it was actually kind of a nightmare. And so it like troubles him. It says it troubled him deeply and he couldn't sleep. And so what the king does is he calls in all of his wise men, okay? And Babylon was really different than Israel. Israel was committed to one God. Babylon was committed to a pantheon of gods, lots of different gods. And so when he calls in his wise men, it, it says there were magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, right? Kind of this, this wide array of what a wise man would be considered. And he calls them in and he says, listen, I had a dream that deeply disturbed me. You guys got to tell me what this dream means. And they're like, no problem. Just tell us what the dream was and we will tell you exactly what that dream means. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, nah. Here's how it's going to go down. We're not going to play the game anymore, okay? Here's how it's going to go down. You tell me what the dream was, okay? And then if you can do that, I know then you're going to know what that dream means, okay? And so if you can't tell me, if none of you wise men can tell me what this dream means, what this dream was and what this dream means, here's what's going to happen. I am going to chop you up into pieces and destroy everything you own. That's what it says. Like, that's what Nebuchadnezzar decided with this. And so these wise men are like shocked and they're like, ah, uh, just tell us what the dream was and we'll tell you exactly what it means. And he's like, no, that's not how it's going to work. I have decided this. You're going to tell me what the dream was. You're going to tell me what it means. Otherwise, you did, right? And they're like, no, this is not how this is supposed to work. This is not like no king requests this of human beings. Human beings can't do this. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, I issue the order. He's ticked off. I issue the order that all of the wise men in Babylon are going to be killed. 
So Daniel, so that's the first part. Daniel is not there at that time. So, so this is shortly after Daniel and his friends get over to Babylon. And so they're still in the wise men training program. It was a three-year training program. They're still somewhere in that training program. And so Daniel doesn't know anything that's happening with this until this guy named Arioch, who was the guy that the king sent to go kill all of the wise men, goes over to Daniel's house and he says, I'm here to kill you. By the way, I'm here to kill you, Daniel. And it says, this is so interesting, it says that Daniel talks to him with calmness. Put yourself in a situation. How calm would you be? He talks to him with calmness, with wisdom, and with tact and respect. And Daniel's like, whoa, 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 what, what happened? Like, why would the king make such a hard order to kill all of us? And so Arioch stops, he doesn't kill him, and he tells him kind of what's happening. And so Daniel goes and he asks the king for some time. Give me a little bit of time and I will tell you what your dream means. So he goes, he gets this kind of appointment with the king. And then he goes home to his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. And he says, guys, you got to pray. We got to pray right now. We get down on our knees and we ask God for mercy and that he would reveal to me what this dream was and what this dream means. Okay? First thing that they do is pray. And then it says, again, put yourself in his shoes. This kind of blows me away. Then it says, Daniel falls asleep. And I think, man, if I was going to be killed and it was like, is God going to give me what this vision is? I think I would have had a hard time falling asleep. But he doesn't. He falls asleep. And while he's asleep, God reveals to him this mystery. He reveals to him what the dream was and what the dream meant. And so then he wakes up and it says the first thing that he does when he wakes up is praise praises God. It's actually a beautiful prayer. It's in verses 20 to 23. It's a beautiful prayer where he's like praising God that he's eternal, that he's the everlasting God, that he's uh, all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, he's sovereign, he's got authority, he's got wisdom, knowledge, understanding, all these things, and he thanks God that God gives him the answer to this problem, that God tells him what the dream was and what the dream meant. Then, so Daniel, first thing he does is he praises God, he thanks God. Then he goes back to this guy, Arioch, and he's like, stop, don't kill anybody yet. God gave me the answer. I know what the dream was, and I know what the dream means. Take me to the king. And so he brings him into Nebuchadnezzar, and the first thing Daniel says is, listen, what you required, what you asked all of us wise men to do is impossible. They said it was impossible. And they're right. It's impossible. No human being can do what you asked us to do. But there's a God in heaven who's different. And he's a revealer of mysteries. And he's given you a vision of what's going to happen in the future. And so humbly, I, I just think this is so interesting. Humbly, Daniel makes sure before he tells him what this vision is, that the king knows it's not, he doesn't have the answer for him because he's something super special. He's just an ordinary dude. He's an ordinary guy. He has the answer because God is something special. Remember, God is the hero of the book of Daniel. Daniel's not the hero. Daniel knows that. He doesn't want all the glory. Yes, look, I know the answer to your dream. He's like, I'm just an ordinary guy, but God gave me the answer, right? And then Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and what his dream meant. So let me stop right there for a second. So we're going to spend a bunch of time here digging into what the dream was because I think it's going to be encouragement to our faith. But I want to say this. Maybe for you, what God wants you to learn from chapter 2 
is something with all of this, something with this first part. And so I want to give you just real quickly, I won't be able to do it justice, but real quickly, I want to give you a few things that when I look at this first part, if I was going to do, when I was planning to do my sermon on this first part, these are some of the things that I was planning to bring out. I'll be quick with this. The first one is this. There's power in treating other people with respect and tact. There's power in treating other people with respect and tact. We see this with Daniel over and over and over again. He is a young man, but somehow he had a way with people like he was respectful, he was kind. This guy that was coming to kill him, he talks to him in a way that causes this guy to have a change of heart. And I think, man, there's a lot that you and I can learn from that. I, I hear a lot of people say things like this, like, I, I just, I say whatever's on my mind. I say whatever I'm feeling. There you go. Okay. If Daniel would have done that, he would have been killed immediately, Right? Like there is wisdom to using respect and tact. And when I treat somebody some way, many times it changes the way that they treat me back, right? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. We need to work for the good of a fallen world filled with fallen people. I look at Daniel and I'm like, Daniel was just like, his family was probably murdered. His family was probably killed. He's taken over to this wretched place, this foreign country. They're not kind to him, I'm sure, right? And what does he do? The king has a bad dream and he wants to help the king. I know he's going to be killed if he doesn't, but he's also helping the king. He wasn't just saving himself. He was also saving all of these pagan wise men who were into demonic stuff witchcraft and the occult, he was saving them too. And it's interesting, when you read, when you kind of slow down and read the, the chapter with depth, it seems like he actually really cared about their lives as well. And so you have this guy who's committed to God. He's living in this fallen, rotten place filled with some pretty rotten people, and he's actually trying to do good for them as well. And I think there's a lot that we could learn from that too. Because we live in a world that's, got, that's fallen and is filled with a lot of rottenness. And yet God has put us here for a reason. And part of our responsibility is to work for the good of the world that we live in, right? Just like Daniel did. So that's the second thing. How about this? We need to ask for God's help for our problems. That's like so obvious, but man, how many times for us is prayer a last resort instead of a first response? Right? Like, what's the first thing Daniel does? He goes back, he hears about all this, he goes back to his friends, and he's like, guys, we gotta pray. We gotta pray. We gotta ask God to give us the answers to this, not just to save ourselves, but to save all of these other people as well. He prays very first, and I think, man, you and I, I don't, you know, I, I hurt my back the other day. Last Sunday, I played basketball. I'm 42 years old. I played basketball with a bunch of young people. I'm like, I'm so stupid. I'm too old to do this. But I hurt my back playing. And so, and so Sunday night and Monday, I'm like in pain. And, and here's, he, here's what I did first. I took some ibuprofen. I iced my back. I tried to stretch it out. I kind of calmed down like this. And then eventually I prayed that God would make my back feel better. And it's like, doggone it. Like, we forget this, don't we? To pray as a first response instead of a last resort. How about this? Kind of goes along with it. Don't forget to give thanks when God provides for the needs. Like, how many times does God answer the prayers that we pray? And we're like, God, I need my back to feel better. I'm struggling here. And then miraculously, my back starts to feel better. And you're like, man, that ibuprofen was really helpful. That's really good to ice your back. 
instead of giving God praise and glory. And maybe in our minds, we've already moved on to the next thing instead of slowing down and recognizing what he's doing and how he's taking care of us. Let me give you one more. Our humility leads to God's glory. Our humility leads to God's glory. It's interesting, at the end of the chapter, after Daniel explains what the dream was to Nebuchadnezzar and what it means, this is Nebuchadnezzar's response. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond? He's like, man, your God is legit. Your God is the real God. Daniel is so clear, like, it's not me. I don't have the answer because I'm something great. I have the answer because God is something great. He's humble, right? And he's making much of God instead of making much of himself. And as he's humble, making much of God, the result is, even though it doesn't last, Nebuchadnezzar uh, quickly turns away from God and starts worshiping all these others again. But at least in the short term, in the moment, he's like, man, your God is real. And he gives glory to God. Our humility often leads to God's glory. So I'll stop there. I, I, we, could dig in, ah, we could dig into that so much. I, there's a big part of me that wants to. But I would challenge you this way. Maybe that's what God wants to teach you, one of those things this week. And if so, take time and talk to him about it. Take time and read and pray to him and ask him to teach you what he wants you to learn. Okay? I want to spend the rest of our time talking about what this dream was, what this rock was that caused Nebuchadnezzar so much fear, so much anxiety and discomfort that to Daniel brought tons of joy and hope. Okay, so this is Daniel chapter 2. Let's look at verse 29. So Daniel's talking to the king. He says, as your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries, God, showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the, uh, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff, like dust, on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. He says, this is the dream. And then he goes on to interpret it. So there you go. This is, this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that freaked him out. He sees this statue, right? This giant, big, dazzling, awesome statue made of a whole bunch of different materials that is utterly destroyed by this rock that's mysteriously cut out of this mountain, that then after it destroys it, this rock turns into a huge mountain itself and fills the whole earth. That's the dream. Easy peasy, right? Like, we get it. We all, we all understand what that dream was. Like, I think about that, and I'm like, man, if I would have had that dream, that kind of would have freaked me out a little bit too. You know, like, I would want to know exactly what that dream means. And so God gives Daniel what that dream means. Look at verse 36. So he says, this is the dream, now I'll interpret it to the king. 
your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he's placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. So he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're in your place because the God of the universe says you're in your place, right? He's helping Nebuchadnezzar know like what God's economy was like. God is at the top. God is the one who determines all these things. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. So he's the head of gold. He and Babylon are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, the third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. And the, hang with me a little bit more. In the time of those kings, the king of heaven, the, the, I'm sorry, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. He says, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Okay, so what's he saying? He's saying, God gave you a dream of the future. God gave you a vision of what's to come, a prophecy of what's to come. In this dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt, they had this powerful statue made of these different metals that represent four powerful kingdoms, four world powers of men, right? These are human kingdoms. And then you have this far more powerful kingdom of God that will set, that will strike this statue. Where does it strike it? This is important. Feet, right? Hits it in its feet. Partly, the feet are partly gold, partly of clay. And so it strikes it in its feet, and yet it crushes the whole thing. And then this stone that crushes it grows into a mountain, and it fills the whole earth. You with me? So this is the prophecy. This is the dream. And this is kind of leads into the interpretation. And all of this happens at about 600-ish B.C., Okay, so about 600 years before Jesus. And so let's talk about it. So you have, we got a little slide with all this stuff on it. You have a head of gold, right? Talks about that in verses 36 to 38. You have chest and arms of silver. You have middle and thighs of bronze. And then you have legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. Now, I would look at that and I would go, okay, so this represents four kingdoms. What are those four kingdoms, right? Like has, has this stuff already happened? Like, how do I know what's what? Well, he's clear. Go to that next slide. He's clear that the head of gold, he tells us who that is. He says, that's Nebuchadnezzar. That's you, Nebuchadnezzar. You are the head of gold and your country, Babylon. They were the world power at the time. They dominated everything. They took whatever they wanted to take. They conquered whoever they wanted to conquer. The next one is the Medo-Persian Empire. And you look at that and you go, well, how do you know? Well, last week, if you remember last week, the end of chapter one, it's kind of this 
this innocuous verse that says that Daniel was there until Cyrus, until the, the King Cyrus came to power. And if you're here last week, I said, that's interesting because Cyrus is actually not a Babylonian king. He's actually the first king of Medo-Persia, the first king of the Medo-Persian empire. And so we said last week, it's so cool, Daniel outlasted the Babylonian empire. Like that's God's faithfulness. This one little kid that's brought over there is trust God and God is faithful to him. So we know that the next empire, the chest and arms of silver, is Medo-Persia. That's the next one after Babylon. In fact, it also tells us that in chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 20, names the Medo-Persian empire. Okay? So we know that that's that. The next one, you go, well, what is that? Well, it's the Greek empire. How do you know that? Well, the next world power in the history of events, maybe, maybe uh, some of you had Western Civ, you talked about this. The next world power in the history of events was Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire, right? How do we know that that's what it's talking about here? Well, actually, a little bit later in that same chapter, chapter 8, verse 21, it names the Greek Empire. And so, again, think of like the timetable here. This is all being written somewhere in like the 500s B.C., the Greek Empire doesn't take power until 331 BC. So that's 250 years later, something like that. So you, like you see, you see some of this prophecy stuff, right? And then you look at this next one, you have the legs and feet of iron, and uh, the legs of iron, the, leg, the feet of iron and clay, and you're like, what is that? Well, when you look at the course of history, after the Greek Empire, the next world power is the Roman Empire, right? So the Roman Empire rules from 63 BC until 476 AD. Why is that important? Well, fo follow, follow some of my train of thought here. So this stuff is written somewhere in the 500-ish, let's say about 600 BC. That's when all this stuff happens with Daniel, right? What are the world powers? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Those are the, the, the major world empires at that time. When did Jesus come? Jesus came right around, let's say, 2 to 4 BC, somewhere in there. Like so when, when the, we transitioned our time periods between BC to AD. So right around there, right? That's when Jesus came. What was the world power when Jesus came? Rome, right? And so that's historical. We all, we all know that. Everybody agrees about that. We read our Bibles. Rome is sort of in charge of everybody during that time. How, how about this question? What's Jesus called in the New Testament? Rock, right? The rock. He's called the cornerstone. Talks about that in a, in a couple different places. Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2. Isaiah, looking forward to this coming Messiah, says this about, about what we ultimately know as Jesus. See, I lay a stone in Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone a sure foundation, the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. Guys, listen, this prophecy, where did, where did the stone hit? The feet, right? What were the feet? What did they represent? The Roman Empire. When did Jesus, the stone, the cornerstone, come during the Roman Empire, right? Like, do you see this? This is one of those things. Here, here's, here's kind of my, my first or one of my last points, I guess. This is a prophecy about Jesus' kingdom 600 years before he came. 
600 years before he came, and it's so specific. In fact, there's people, secular liberal theologians would look at this at the book of Daniel, and even though the evidence points, all the evidence, most of the evidence points to Daniel being written like when it says it was written and all this stuff happening as the Bible says, they look at it and they go, it can't be. Can't be, it had to be written later because look how specific it was. All these things that it said actually happen. And we're like, yeah, because it's true. It's real. The God of the universe said this is what's going to happen because he sees everything. And it actually happens the way that he says it's going to happen. This is a beautiful prophecy that Jesus fulfilled that we can look at and go, man, this was written hundreds of years before him. And it's exactly as he said it would be, right? Here's the second thing I would say. Jesus' kingdom is greater than any other kingdom ever. Jesus' kingdom is greater than any other kingdom ever. In the prophecy, in the dream, in the vision, this rock hits, it sort of destroys everything, and it starts to this new kingdom that's big and powerful and consumes the earth, right? What did Jesus say he was coming to start when he came? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has arrived the kingdom of God is growing, right? It's like a mustard seed, the littlest seed, and it grows into the biggest plant, right? The kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom, is greater than any other kingdom ever. I look at our world, I look at our country, and I go, because it's kind of our kingdom, right? We're, we're Americans, we live here. And I'm like, I love our kingdom, I love our country, I love being American. I got, I got this random email from an army chaplain recruiter last week saying, hey, are you interested in becoming an army chaplain? And I was like, this is bizarre. Does he even know how old I am? Like, I am not a young man to do this, you know? But I thought about it, I thought, well, that'd be kind of cool because I love, I'm not going to do it, but I thought, I love our country, you know? Like, this is so, it's so interesting. But guys, this kingdom is not our first home, right? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is so much greater. What we get as part of his kingdom is so much better and fuller than anything that we could experience even living here in the United States, even living here in America. His kingdom is peace-filled. His kingdom is transcendent. There's purpose. It's life-giving, right? And think about this. He invites us in. You don't have to be born in his kingdom. In fact, none of us are born into his kingdom. But he invites us in if we want to be. Let, let me end with this. Let me end with the question that I told you I was going to ask you at the beginning. I said, what sort of emotions, right, does the rock invoke in you? I'd say it this way. What, is the, how does, the, what does the rock make you feel? And when you think about this rock, Jesus, what does it make you feel? To Nebuchadnezzar, this rock terrified him in his dream, right? To Daniel, this rock would have been like everything. There's hope. There's a kingdom that's coming, that's growing, right? Daniel loved the rock. He was a rock lover like me. He loved the rock. He loved Jesus. And so the rock brought hope to him. What does it bring to you? I had, had somebody that, was, um, that we were connected with that uh, just died recently. And, um, and I don't know that he was a Christian that he knew followed God. In fact, there's, as far as I can tell, no evidence that he did. And I'll be honest with you, it's just where it's been wearing on me a lot. 
And it made me want to ask you guys, where are you at with him? You know, when you, the rock. When you read this stuff and we talk about this each week, do we go, yeah, that's interesting. And we walk out the door and we just do whatever we want to do. Or we live however we want. We live in our kingdom instead of his kingdom. Like we're either his child or we're his enemy. There's no, there's no middle ground, not according to the Bible. Our sin makes it such. I'm either forgiven and loved and offered grace and peace and compassion, or I'm his enemy. And I experience his wrath and his judgment. If we don't know the rock, we should be, we should be fearful because of what comes. As much as God is love, and he is, he is, and he calls us. He's love to his children, but to his enemies, he's wrath and he's judgment. Guys, I want to challenge you. Like, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with the rock? Like, we read this and we go, man, that's, that's pretty amazing. It's so specific. Forgive me if I, it's complicated, if, explaining it, like dig in, ask God to explain it if you're confused. But what do we do with him? Do we trust him and give our lives to him? Or do we go, no thanks, I'm good. Ultimately, he respects our decision. He calls us, calls us, and calls us, and calls us, but he won't force us. Can I, can I encourage you, if you sit here today and, you're, and you're, you don't know him, and you, you're not a Christian, man, if God's doing something in your heart, please come talk to me or come talk to one of us. Mark on your little connection card. We'll call you. But don't wait. Either you're in or you're not in. Either you're like, I'm, I'm his, or you're not. May we be his.